Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Tez Magazine Debrief podcast. We're going to be looking at the 20th of August issue. And as you can probably tell from the fact I'm introducing it, John is away again. But I'm delighted instead to be joined by Helen Amas, our commissioning editor. Hi, Helen. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for joining us. And Gronya, as ever, is with us as well. Hi, Gronya. Hello, hello. Good stuff. Um, it's a great Tuesday, so what better time to have a podcast chat? And then hopefully you'll be listening to this on a nice sunny Thursday or Friday. So let's get started. Now, the first piece we're going to look at is Helen's choice. So Helen, why don't you tell us all about it? And then we'll set the stage for a good discussion about it. Yeah, so this is um, it's a column written by one of our, our regular research columnists, uh, Christian Pakova. Um, and so I should say that the issue this week is a subject knowledge special. So um, it's it's looking at all kind of aspects of um, subject specialism teaching uh, and the knowledge that teachers need to to support that. Um, and Christian's picked up on a really interesting point in his column, which I don't think we talk about enough when we are thinking about education research. Um, and that is the role that subjects, school subjects play in how that research is applied in the classroom. You know, we see so many different research reports. Um, there's a real kind of drive for evidence-informed practice and using that to support teacher development, etc. Um, but what Christian points out is that so many of the studies that that, that is based on um, are conducted in certain subjects, such as maths or science, and the findings from them aren't always as transferable to other subjects as people kind of make out they are. Um, and there's a sort of a, you know, a simplistic idea that what works in one subject will naturally apply in, you know, art as much as it does in maths, for example. But actually, is that always the mm. Yeah, you're right. The first to point out that it is a subject specialist issue, which is great. And the, and the cover feature, which we're not even going to talk about because we've got so much other good content to talk about, is is a real sort of tour de force in offering insights on different subjects. But yes, it's a good point, isn't it? And your, your example of maths and arts is, is sort of spot on, really, isn't it? Because it's all very well and good going, right, we, we found this this works really well. This improves your maths outcomes by a whole grade over, over a two-year period. It's fantastic. And then you come along and go, yeah, but I'm teaching art or drama or, or geography even. You know, like any subject could go, like, doesn't really work because I've got to engage differently. I can't structure questions in that way. I can't, you know, set homework like that, whatever it might be. And I suppose that sort of... The, the trouble is, I guess, in some ways, it's almost like we can't, or how much can we expect academia to do and go off and do every subject specifically? And maybe in time, just through the process of everyone out there doing research in new areas, we will have that. But until we get there, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, Groen, did you ever encounter that in the classroom? Oh, or have you see that issue? Absolutely. And I think it's this willingness for all subjects to be like nice and tessellating. Like, oh, this is this, is this box, and this is this box. We can... We can this was such a success for the drama department let's roll it out for everybody mm. else and it's you know it'd be lovely if that was true because it'd be very convenient and it would make training and life so much easier but it's just not true and you know if you wanted to read more about this after you've read this piece um Dylan William has also done an, uh, an interview with us where he talked about how classrooms are wicked learning environments and explains like 
the whole science behind why these um, these research papers that are published, you've got to read it and then take so much into account when the context is so important. And he told me a really interesting story about how they were looking at class sizes and the, um, the research got completely messed up because the parents cottoned on to what they were doing and then tried to move their children into the other classes. So the you know, when they looked at the results from the data, they had they, they had they had to really dismiss it altogether because the parents that were more more keen to move their students were the sort of parents who were also tutoring their kids outside the classroom too. So when they looked at what you know what impact the um, the intervention that they had had upon the children, they had no idea because it it was it wasn't controlled because envi- classrooms aren't controlled environments. Yeah, we had we had a piece again on that recently for some researchers at um, University of London, um, and talking about that and that you know doing doing research in the in the in the lab. You know, I presume you know getting pupils in or children in and, and sort of seeing what works is one thing. But then obviously you take that to the busy, messy, noisy classroom environment where they've just arrived from a a boring assembly that's overrun, or, or the teacher's been stuck in a traffic jam and you know, had to run in the last minute putting their tie on or something. And it, it's it's not the same, is it? And that idea of, right, oh, I'm going to structure like this, I'm going to put that question there, it doesn't work. But I suppose at the same time is, I guess it's that, that's the real world though, isn't it? And that's you know, not they're saying that in that glib way, like, oh, the real world. But it is just like, you can't replicate. It's the same probably in the medical profession, isn't it? There's probably wonderful research and stuff. And then you get there and the surgeon has been up all night and, you know, they, and they make a mistake. And it's like, oh, but the research said that's, this was the best way to carry out this operation. It's like, yeah, but humans are really very fallible creatures, aren't they? So I suppose we shouldn't be too hard on, on either academia or teachers or schools if, if they try these ideas out. And I suppose that's the other thing, isn't it? To your point there, Gronia, about, oh, let's roll it out. Maybe that's the sort of bit too gung-ho. But I suppose we do have to sometimes say, well, look, it does seem to have worked let's give it a go. And I think if you could at least sort of don't go into it thinking, well, it's worked there, it will unquestionably work. As long as you have that kind of open mind that, oh, let's give it a try. Let's see if we can adapt it. I suppose that's the sort of sweet spot you want to hit to make it realistic. Yeah, I think that's, you know, Christian does make that point in in his piece that um, that actually it's not to say that research that works in one one subject will never work in another subject it's yeah. but it's that we need to like Gronje says factor in the um the context and actually you know he's he makes the argument that subject specialists themselves are, are quite often the best people to do that to kind of um you know they know their students they know their subjects they know their context it's just about having the confidence to take that research and sort of find the bits that work for you um, and the bits that don't work for you, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, I think that that there is definitely there is definitely still that sort of, um, you know, argument for the importance of the teacher's own sort of judgment and and subject knowledge. Yeah, that seems key, doesn't it, actually? It's like you take it in the drama department and goes, we're really going for the drama department here as the, the, the ones who make it work. But they do it and they, they sort of what, give a presentation or something. But then other teachers go, OK, that's interesting. We know that wouldn't quite work. but we could try it like that or maybe we give that a bit a go even though we're a bit skeptical and i suppose like i say it's that they have to then adapt it to their setting and i, I guess the hope was that this the slt whoever understands that and lets those teachers reinterpret it and that's exactly why it's so important to have a balance in different faculties on your slt because i think otherwise you get yourself into a bit of an echo chamber if you have mm. subjects that are very similar so you've got lots of history so really this really bothers me <laughs> So if you have lots of like history and English teachers all on SLT, then their classrooms are very, very similar and the things that work in English tend to work in history. And that's why you get so much crossover between the two departments. But 
if you don't have any voices saying, actually, hang on, we need to think about the science department here and how, you know, that's not going to work in their labs or we need to think about music because of the considerations we've got for that subject. It's so important to have a balance in your SLT. And in primary, I'm sure it's the same when you think about different year groups, like different people leading on different areas, like making sure that all those voices are being heard and being considered. Because if you don't think about them, then you'll you run up against these problems that uh, that we're talking about here. Mm. I think it's that's especially important if you've got... Um you know, the t- type of evidence and research that is driving policy. So so it is something that kind of um, all schools are being encouraged to do as a kind of blanket approach. You know, we've seen this recently with the um, EEF report into cognitive science uh, and, and retrieval practice and things like that. So it's it's these, um, these, these, these bits of research that are kind of underpinning everything the schools are being encouraged to do. Um, and and in, in that case, the kind of, um, you know, the context is really, really important, isn't it? Yeah, well, as we can see, it's a, it's a it's a feature that can generate a lot of discussion or, or a column, I should say, and it's, it's a good example of why something that sounds kind of maybe even semi-obvious on the surface of like, oh, not all research applies to the same setting, but then you have to think about what you do with that kind of idea and take it further. And that's always the key, isn't it? It's all very well and good to sort of sit around maybe in a, in a meeting and go, oh, well, that won't work for us. And it's like, yeah, okay, but what could you do with it? How well can you take it? So yeah, yeah, really good column and hopefully our discussion or people who read it will get a good sort of similar sort of get some ideas flowing or thinking particularly with the, the you know the new year ahead turning now to the second feature we're going to talk about and this is my choice and it sort of carries on i guess and you could say in a way similar well he's a subject specialist issue but it, it does take on a little bit of that idea takes it forward isn't it about how talking about the idea of skills that we teach in the classroom and lifelong skills and this is a sort of thing that you're seeing more about i feel i feel like i've seen this more and more often over the last few years and it's the idea of the, the modern skills that you need to succeed in the world aren't just to know how to you know aren't just passing your english and maths exams it's about having analytical thinking or complex problem solving or you know resilience and, and flexibility and these are sort of terms are actually now being sort of quite embedded in in reports you see particularly in this feature which is written by um tez's own kate parker she references sort of documents from the uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and the World Economic Forum, who talk about how these these sort of skills, these lifelong skills, are cru- critical to the future. You know, and the, the article is a good, you know, very interesting job talking to people about what what they are, what do they mean by this, uh, how do we teach them. I can't help but wonder though if a lot of teachers might read this and sort of think, well, I think we're doing this already, and I think we're doing it unspokenly, and it's not metric or anything. But are we not teaching analytical skills in how to write an essay or, you know, comprehension exercise? Are we not teaching resilience in PE, you know? And I suppose there's nothing wrong with contextualising it a bit more and making it more explicit about what you're, we're teaching them this. But I suppose you have to balance that with not making it another heavily metriced, form-filling, tick-box thing where you have to always prove everything because it, that can be very onerous. And I sort of think, weren't people in the you know, in the industrial age, weren't they analytical? Didn't they look at a problem and sort of work out how to solve it? Did they not collaborate? Were they not resilient? So I think it's an interesting one. I think it, I think it's good to talk about, but I think we have to be careful not to sort of over-embed it as a sort of formalised thing. But what do you two think? Yeah, it's, in- it's interesting. I mean, your your point um, about uh, teachers teaching them already and it these these... They're kind of, um, you know, universal sort of evergreen skills in the, in the sense, like you say, that, um, you know, people will have always had to think analytically. 
I think what's interesting about the current sort of movements we're seeing in education is that there is this drive for them to become more explicit. Um, you know, you've got, like you say, the World Economic Forum um, making making this list of these are the skills that the students are going to need sort of in, in 25 years time, specifically to, to be able to cope with you know, the way that our world is changing in terms of um, the kind of post-pandemic, um, you know, what, whatever the changes are, we can get to see what how, how the world's going to change post-COVID. Um, and also with the, the, the rise of things like artificial intelligence and the way that jobs are going to be changing. So there is this kind of real move towards this type of overarching skill uh, and making that explicit. And, it, you know, it's interesting that it's kind of surfacing at this point and, and it's a sort of um, that it, it's a kind of indication that priorities are perhaps shifting a little bit in education. Gordon, I expect you've got a, a thought or two on this. I wonder if Helen rem- remembers if she was also teaching when I was teaching when the strands came in. Do you remember when the strands came in of the new curriculum? So I remember, I think it was my first year of teacher training. And so I was a really new excited trainee teacher and I was my first staff meeting and they're talking about this new the new changes to the curriculum we've got these new strands and they're all different colours and there were all these they were very similar to that list that's in the article of all the different skills that you you want um you want your students to have and we had that the children who are work, who are working in school today are working for jo- are preparing for jobs that haven't been invented yet and it was that that was the the dawn of that phrase being beaten over our heads continuously for the next 20 years and they um they we had to sit with all with our curriculum plans and they mixed us up with all different departments and talk about how in our departments we were teaching these skills and like matching it to the the different skills and then we had to go to our lesson plans and making sure in our lesson plans we were noting down when we were teaching these skills in our lesson plans and I think this is the kind of thing where yep I think we'd all agree that these are really important skills to teach at school and these are skills that are useful for the rest of your life and they're skills that all children should should be taught. I think we'd also pro- probably agree that writing it down on every single lesson plan and doing it in a performative kind of, look, this lesson today, kids, we're going to be doing some creativity. Like, it doesn't need to be signposted. And what we're doing there is just burdening teachers with, with extra work. What would be nice is to see extra training for teachers to know how to teach these skills well that would be a good way to to address the problem. But if we're just simply going to say to teachers, oh, you're doing this stuff already, now please spend hours and hours of your time flagging up where you're doing it. That's less useful, but actually training people on how to do these things well, because, you know, you look at that that list and I'd say, you could confidently say in, you know, certain subjects we do all of these things, but we could definitely do it better. And how do we do it better? Well, probably with a bit more funding to like the technology example, technology in schools is, as we saw in the pandemic, is pretty paltry. Like if we invested more money into technology in state schools, that would probably make the teaching of technology and the skills that needed in technology easier, rather than just saying, yeah, you need to flag up where you're doing it and to, to show us that you're doing these, these, these skills. So that's, for me, that's, the, that's where it hinges, that's the difference. Well, I totally agree. And I think it's interesting the technology one is the one where I think in Again, I mean, this is, this is obviously highly anecdotal, but I look back and think, well, actually, like I reckon every generation 
the children are going to be better at the tech stuff than than the pet, the adults. You know, you still need to you still need to provide the formal structure of learn, teaching them about but technology. But Dan, they can't but, send emails or open well, up Word documents. Well, they this can... is apparently true. No, this is this is the thing, isn't it? But I still think generally kids are going to learn, or at least majoritively are going to learn enough about tech in their own lives that you don't need to formalise it too much. But I look at that list in the, in the magazine, and the only one that stands out there is I don't think I was taught at school subconsciously or you know not explicitly but i was taught them was is leadership and social influence I don't <laughs> that's exactly what i wrote down what, too yeah, yeah i don't exactly yeah. know what that means do they mean like is that about collaboration and, and sort of how to get on in in a in a group setting and that's the one thing where i think yeah i think actively teaching the idea of collaboration about how do you problem solve together as an active task so it's not a less not within a lesson or like you know mm. it just happens organically in a, in a history t- t- lesson but it's like right well today i'm going to set you a task you've got to work out how to get this object from over there without using you know, and using these three objects and it's this kind of like problem solving thing. That's something where I could imagine you could formalize a lesson, you could do training to teach us how to do that. And out of that comes this kind of, this learning of collaboration and, and sort of social influence whereby you kind of have to influence each other as thinking, if that's what that means. Helen, I don't know what you thought about that. Yeah, it's interesting because um, the people that Kate spoke to in the uh, the piece, somewhat, uh, you know, someone from the um, OECD and then uh, also... Uh, from, um, I can't remember, one of the uh, uh, awarding organisations. They both say that, you know, these skills should be being taught through lessons rather than, she explicitly asked them, should should they be taught in kind of, um, you know, their own lessons, essentially. So lifelong skills lessons. And they both say, no, they should be embedded within the curriculum across across other subjects. But, But actually, you know, I do think it's interesting that we are sort of saying on one hand, these are the really important skills that students need to know, but they somehow need to just be taught by being woven through teaching other other subjects and other skills. When actually, you know, if they are so important, why couldn't we just teach them as a subject? Why couldn't you have, you know, lifelong skills lessons covering the type of, of, of stuff that you, you're talking about there? And I think that there's this interesting kind of um, clash between us being really focused on teaching through subjects because that's what we've always done but then at the same time saying actually the overarching skills that are being taught like woven through these subjects are in fact the most important things that that students are going to need and it kind of doesn't quite marry marry up does it it doesn't if you do agree that they are the most important skills doesn't it because other other people would say well actually no having english math science knowledge is most important to is you know they, that it should be the top tier and the other stuff should happen underneath whereas the other way around you say let's teach them lifelong skills don't worry about subject knowledge which i know is not what you're saying or other people or what other people are saying but it's sort of like one's got to come above the other hasn't it yeah i guess it's it's, it's balancing up that so some people would say if you are good in the like if you just if you were just taught those subjects you would naturally be good at all of those those things mm, yeah but then I think it could be true that you could, you know, you can do a, a, a GCSE in maths, you can do a GCSE in English, you could do a GCSE in history and still not be very good at complex problem solving. Yeah. Because yeah. those qualifications, I think we'd probably need to look at it at a higher level. The sad truth is we don't spend curriculum time on it because you don't get a GCSE or an A level in it. Yeah. What I was going to say is the trouble is, is that, and I agree with you, Helen, actually, that if you have, why not have a life skills module that runs mm-hmm. once a week? do you but do teachers have the time skills training 
you know, the, the desire to teach that because also we've had things, you know, recently on financial literacy as in, you know, learning about money. I think that's really important for young people. And I'm, I'm baffled. Well, I know it now does, we, we talked about it, but I sort of still feel like it could be so much more explicit, like learning about money. How important is that for your life? Home economics, you know, learning how to cook. I mean, if we've got a health crisis in this country and then an obesity issue, learning how to cook and eat well, well, actually it's one of those things it's like really should everyone do that like how how could that not make you a healthier nation if everyone that grows up learning how to cook some good healthy meals mm. but where have we got the time for that so you start to run into that this again the hard reality of time but i think it's it's an interesting one because i think you're absolutely right when you say well actually if we value them so much but then we don't bother to explicitly teach them it's like do we undermine our own point but then also do we just sort of stick to what we know because like you say we we like what we know and so we stick with it it reminds me of the feature, cover feature we had um, a couple of months back now uh, by John Morgan about what the value of education is, yeah. um, you know, and, and he sort of uh, was looking at the, the the monetary value of education and the way the fact that we see it as a, a means to get a good job. And um, and that's sort of the primary, um, you know, uh, our primary argument for, for, for students a lot of the time why they need to do this in class is because they won't get the grade, they won't get a good job if they don't. And, and actually, you know, is that what we want the value of education? To, is that what we truly believe education's for? Um, and is what we're doing in schools kind of speaking to what we think the value of education actually is? That makes you think of a time when I was an NQT and my mentor said, you know, because I kept saying, you know, you need this because you need a few examples. I was trying to give them other reasons why they need to need to know this. Like when we're doing analysis of poetry, I say, you know, this is really good. You get to like pick over the words. I'm going to teach you how to like read between the lines. And that's great when you're when you're having arguments with your friends on text messages and you can pick over their text messages. <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. Like, here, I'm going to teach you how to be really sneaky argumentative people. <laughs> but, but isn't that... <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly that, isn't it? You talk about that in poetry. You say you explain what you're doing. You call that analytical. You call that, you know... Uh, social influence right that's what we were talking about earlier that's what that is isn't it it's knowing how to like if i word it in this such a way i'll I'll, you know i'll win the argument with my friends in this you know why i should why we should go to see that film and not the other film yeah it's um well it shows doesn't it you know what what an interesting idea it is that we agree i think that these things are real and and very very valuable but do we do enough to teach them should we be teaching explicitly don't know if you listen to this and you've got your own thoughts and let us know on twitter we think a very interesting topic and one that could certainly you know could be taken further and, and interesting to hear what schools are doing if, if anyone is doing anything around this is a more explicit thing then again let us know because it'd be very interesting to hear about so we're going to move now to feature three which is gronya's choice and another one that i think will lead us to some good anecdotes so Gronya, <laughs> take it away yes yeah, so this is by kathy brown john and she is a sociology teacher and as all sociology teachers know, and photography teachers, and classics teachers, and teachers, oh, let me think of other departments that probably get used for other things. The music department get used a lot for this. They made, they're made to teach outside of their subject. And, you know, this can hit anybody. I was an English teacher and I was made to teach a fair variety of different subjects to different degrees of success. And it's all about when you're asked to teach outside your specialism and the challenge that presents and what you can do about it. And she, as somebody who's a veteran of this, Cathy shares her tips and, and goes through goes through her advices for other teachers who find themselves in this position. And I thought I'd uh, I'd do a little shout out on Twitter and ask for teachers to share their stories of when they've 
talked about cover lessons because, of course, when you are asked to cover, it's very rarely within your own department and you're normally made to, to, think, to use your teacher toolkit of other skills because your subject knowledge isn't going to be helpful and had some really funny stories. And it also made me think about my own time of when I was in the classroom. And for a few years, I got lumbered with history. And even when I was in different schools, I still ended up teaching the same year group and the same subject in history. <laughs> And I was poor at history at school. I didn't study history past year nine. I opted to do some different combination of humanities. I can't remember. I think it was business studies and managed to avoid history. And I had to keep teaching um, the 1060, is it 1066? And they had the, the guy who got the arrow in the eye. Yeah, that's, yeah? How, it's, that's yeah? how it's famously referred to as well. Yeah, when the and, guy got the arrow in the eye. Yeah, and the feu- feudal code. Yeah. Of how all the... And that was great because, of course, that that tied in with English a little bit. But I used to get so frustrated with them and their knowledge of history was even worse than mine and that was that was quite terrifying. Well, it and should then, have been. Yeah, but <laughs> no, because they were studying it. Why should it be about... They studied it more recently than I have. Oh, I've I see done, what you mean. So you've come in yeah, like half through the year and yeah, then... Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't got a clue. <laughs> and oh, the, my worst lesson teaching history was when one kid went... But miss, like, dinosaurs weren't real, were they? And we had to go all the way back to the start of time and just did, like, a very condensed, like, this is what happened in, like, you need to know these really important dates yeah. and did, like, that's a That's a really course. good, that's a brilliant sketch, the idea of a teacher sort of getting ex- more and more exasperated with they don't know this, <laughs> so having to go back and go, you know what? We'll just go back to the start and we'll go from there. <laughs> and at the end of the module, it's like, have you taught them about the Battle of Hastings? It's like, no, but they know all about the Big Bang. And the, you know. <laughs> that, that reminds me of a, a column we had um, a little while ago, a history teacher about teaching to the exam. And uh, she oh, shared the story yes. of uh, a student heading into uh, their GCSE paper about, you know, Nazi rule. Uh, asked her on the way in, miss, what are the Nazis? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. you know, the basics. Yeah, right. Well, there you go. But that's hard, right? For your story there, Gwen. You're like, yeah, I, all jokes aside, if it's not your subject specialism and you go in and you're a bit like, presumably you just get the textbook and the curriculum and you're a bit like, oh, crikey, what have I got to work out here? It does sound very difficult. And I don't know, did you get any good anecdotes on Twitter? Oh, I've got some great ones. So lots of people, I asked about covering lessons and I expected people to tell me about times they had asked to cover lessons. But I also got plenty of stories about when they had left cover and then what they came back in to find. So (laughs) one teacher um, came back to worksheets and um, they were just stuck in the book, like uncomplete. All All the cover teacher had done and made the kids stick in these blank worksheets. No work done. None at all, just books full of worksheets. One person returned to their board covered in... um, the pens that don't rub out, what's, that, what's the word I'm thinking of? Oh, it's like permanent Sharpie. marker, permanent no. marker, like Sharpie markers. Their whole board covered with notes, like on, I think it was Hamlet, but none of the work completed. Finally, so <laughs> <laughs> was none of the work done. They had a board that was destroyed and had to had to get that awful um, solvent on it to get rid of it all. Um, then the teacher covering a science lesson bottom set year 10 they were doing genetics and an Ofsted inspector walked in just as one one boy was brandishing his naked webbed foot 
And the teacher says, so what does Jay's foot tell us about genetics? And one, one of the kids shouted out, it tells us that his mum shagged his brother, miss. <laughs> oh my God. And a cover. Oh, it just makes me cringe. Um, yeah, lots of stories of people leaving cover that never got done or coming back or, or middle of a cover lesson and the kid just shouting, miss, vomit, and then projectile vomit spewing across a couple of those stories more common than you would think so yeah i think the there's something about not being in your own classroom not teaching your own own subject that just makes everything like more heightened and more, oh, more dramatic 100%. And more awful. do you not find even even not like not sitting in the, with the, your usual desk setup. We've had that in the pandemic, obviously. Like not having your normal keyboard that you use like when yeah. you're going between home and work. Whatever. I find that really. Or like when when Outlook updates and you get a new version of the software, oh, it does my head in. It's so discombobulating because it's like, what? Where's that button I like now? You know, where's that feature? You get used to it, but yeah, I can imagine as a teacher with ch- children in front of you, expecting to, you know, in all the behaviour management, it must be ah, just chaos. Well, that feeling when you walk into a cover lesson and there is no cover. There's just nothing on that desk. You're just like in an art classroom and you're like, cool. So, (laughs) (laughs) And the kids are like, this is never here. She's not been here all term. You're like, oh, that's that's fine though, kids. We're just going to carry on though. Like, I'm sure Miss... Mrs. Jane can't wait to come back and teach you again. Like, I can see why they, she's off for this lesson. <laughs> do they do that thing where they always say like, oh yeah, no, she always lets us do this. Oh, she never set homework. You know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Mm. She lets us listen to music. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the normal place is one is the worst. Like, this is not your seating plan. <laughs> she did not put you two together. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, there you go. So the, the, the feature has some good sort of tips and tricks on how to sort of make these, these horror scenarios not come to pass if it happens to you. Um, I suppose, you know, it just shows, doesn't it, though, that you've got to be a bit of a jack of all trades sometimes in any job. And I guess, you know, it's not always easy, but as long as you get through it and they learn something, you know, arrow in the eye, that's something that now all those kids, I'm sure, remember about the battle of Hastings. So, yeah, good stuff. So, well, I think, you know, for a, for a grey Tuesday morning, we've really sort of, you know, plumbed some interesting depth of conversation there. It shows what a good action-packed issue it is. So, yeah, that's the 20th of August edition of Tez. Do have a read. Let us know what you thought about the um, articles and let us know if you listened to this, what you thought about our conversations and any thoughts you had to add. Love to hear about them on Twitter. And um, yeah, we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.